1: Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real stories of the struggles they faced and the tools they found to still live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today
2: we have Laura Warburton with us, and I'm so excited to have you on, Laura. We go, I don't know how (laughs) far back, 20-something years, um, back into the days when I was doing massage before politics and everything else. And... I'm so excited to have you on here. It's unfortunate for the topic that we're going to be talking to today, but you have definitely shown resilience through uh, going through what you've gone through, losing your sweet Hannah. Um, Tell us about Live Hannah's Hope. Tell us about the organization, and tell us about your daughter, Hannah.
0: So, you know, as you're talking, Michelle, um, you know, the tears well up. The emotion comes up. And it occurs to me very clearly that resilience doesn't mean we don't hurt. Resilience means we move through and to find a better path because of whatever has happened. So that's how Live Hannah's Hope was started. Friends started to literally hound me after Hannah died. I could barely function And people are like, you've got to do something. You've got to, because I was reaching out. I was being honest about it. I was talking about it. And Michelle, you know, in our world at that time, in the world of politics, whatever you presented yourself as, it was important. And so I had to make a decision, was I going to pretend to be something I wasn't, just to keep up images? And after she died, I decided I was going to be honest, because that was part of what she did. She kept up images. And was afraid to tell her friends what was really happening. And her friends have since told me over and over again, had we known what she was going through, had we understood we had known what to do, we would have done it. And that's the greatest regret of people that have someone to die of suicide is they think they could have done something. So live Hannah's hope was started out of because of. So, I had a relative at the viewing say, don't do what ifs, because what ifs are trying to change the past, and you can't do that. That's painful. And she said, do because of. So that's what we did, and that's why Live, Hannah Hope exists, is because of what we went through, what we've learned, what we can accomplish in helping other people to avoid that pain. To avoid having to live through suicide to avoid wanting to kill yourself i mean having ideation suicidal ideation is torture it's absolute torture
1: wow so, laura i i want to ask if you'll tell us a little bit about hannah and the background maybe your family story before before all of the what ifs or before what you're doing now because of can you help all of us get to know sweet hannah and your family a little bit
0: First of all, Hannah was not sweet. Oh, all right. Well, the, <laughs> As only a loving uh, mother could say. Hannah, <laughs> Hannah was intense. Uh, yeah, like her mom. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. She was powerful. She was intense. She was very acutely aware of people and their feelings. Like I find so many young adults who are struggling with suicide are. Uh, very, I would, I'll I'll put a label on it and say introverts. Um, so Hannah, but also Hannah was, even though with all those things, she was still outgoing. She tried so hard to be a part and to be a good friend. And she was, she was in student leadership. She was voted in student leadership in ninth grade. The only girl amongst all the boys, which was really quite her favorite place to be actually. <laughs> um she was almost a straight A student. I still can't say straight A because I can hear her say, Mom, don't lie. So um she was <laughs> but she was all about doing the best that she could do, always. She was a perfectionist. And what happened was, and we didn't realize this till afterwards, but when she was born, she was born not breathing. That was her first concussion. Wow. And then when she was two, yeah, then she was having um Uh, epilepsy seizures and we didn't, we knew it. We took them in, but of course they couldn't diagnose it because it happens randomly. She went on to having fainting seizures, which I had no idea that that is what she was having until I got involved with the epilepsy association of Utah through, through a bill we ran with them, but she fell when she was two and she hit, she got stitches in the front of her head so, and then after that, she was a martial artist. She was incredibly talented fighter, very disciplined, but she had all these concussions. And we, of course, didn't understand the impact of that. I didn't understand. And she suffered with some depression, with some anxieties, um, but I thought it was all just growing up, right, growing up, moving to a new town, making new friends. Well, when she was... 15 actually 14 she got in a car accident and 18 months later and through 18 months of watching her change her entire personality she couldn't do it anymore and she was gone she ended her pain she obviously did not see any other way out and she left a note saying all that so that's really how she felt even though we had taken her to a doctor, we had taken her to top neurologists, we had done everything that the medical community knew how to do, which was very little at that time when it comes to concussions. When I go to teach QPR, which is uh, Question, Persuade, and Refer, which is a community suicide prevention class that I teach all the time whenever I can, and one of the questions I ask, and I ask people to be really honest, is, it's, you think it's the weak-minded people that die, that can kill themselves. And I get some honest people, especially the older folks, will raise their hands and say, yeah. And that is simply not the case. It is really not the case. Matter of fact, it takes so much to live when you're in that state. You want to go. And, and it takes just so much to live. So Hannah was, I always thought she was going to be my lawyer. I was hoping for a lawyer. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but smart, talented, feisty little girl, my only girl. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I
2: remember the day that she passed, and um, it was really jarring. It was jarring for me on a personal level because I also had children the same age as Hannah, or around the same age, and one in particular who was struggling at the time with drug use and depression and was self-medicating, you know, it's a constant fear and worry, and it's so upsetting when you have a friend that's going through this, and yet you're also kind of concerned. And we don't have a lot of resources. We just don't have a lot of resources or information for parents on, like, what to do it almost seems like a packet should come home from school saying like in junior high school like these are the struggles these are the signs to look out for and these are some tips or or things that you can do if you believe your child isn't is struggling
0: where are we going to get
2: that information from
0: my website
1: i was just going to say wait a second ladies i think that's what laura can teach us today Let's yeah, my,
0: my website, that's exactly, Michelle, that's exactly why I put everything into a website. Um, not necessarily to just remember Hannah, although that helps, but to get people resources. And uh, let me tell you a secret. <laughs> the rest of Utah and whoever else is listening, Utah is doing something right. Even through COVID, we are down about 10%. And that's not in comparison to, like, we're from nine down to seven, or seven to nine in the nation now. And that's overall, not just kids. I believe that it's still the number one cause of death with kids in Utah. I think that's still true. But we have dropped our suicide rate. And I personally think a big part of that is because people are staying home. The kids are staying home. I don't really have an answer but we are doing something right. There are things happening. We are talking about it and talking about it is the most important thing. So like Jenny, you're having the, you're sponsoring a QPR with the sheriff's office and we're going to teach at least 30 more people how to watch those signs, Michelle, that you're talking about. Michelle, come on, come on down. You know, I'd love to participate. Yeah. Come on over. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of people in Utah doing that. A lot of people. It's it's always a team. We know this. It's never one person. So you're right, Michelle, resources. One of the things they're doing in the schools in Davis County is especially on top of it, way more on top of it than any other county I've ever seen. And the state knows that too. But they're teaching mindfulness in schools. They're teaching Learning to Breathe, which is a teenage mindfulness course, which I'm certified in. It's a beautiful program teaching kids just to be still, and to allow those painful thoughts to scroll by like the the clouds, if need be. You know, we don't have to attach to every thought that we think. We don't have to ruminate on everything. So there's a lot of good things. You know,
2: happening. you bring that up, and that's um. We've been interviewing quite a few people about suicide recently, and it seems to me like that it begins with the thought. So it begins with a thought, and then it it seems like these people have ruminated on that thought, and then it just continued to grow and grow and grow and get more and more complex and more and more difficult to push aside.
0: You know, one of the things that came to me, and Michelle, you know about this, is the work of Byron Katie, Uh, what she does in inquiry. And so to be able to take a thought that... We're just convinced that we're right about, because we all want to be right, and question it. If it's bringing any kind of pain to us, then we can question that thought and find the truth of the matter. You know, is it true? Can I absolutely know that it's true? What happens when I believe that thought? How am I ruminating on it? How is it making me feel? What's going on? What would happen if I couldn't even believe that thought? And then you turn it around. So that's another beautiful skill I just got to teach to a group of junior high kids.
1: Hey, Laura, can I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you, I'm fascinated by all of the work that you're doing and the training and the different techniques that you're, you're able to share with other people. Did you know those before you lost Hannah or is this part of what you've learned because of what happened with her?
0: Because of, okay, I didn't, I ruminated just like her. I taught her everything that she did. I kept up appearances. She kept up appearances. I changed
1: because Hannah wanted to change. I did. And I, yeah, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I'm wondering if we can take a quick break and come back. If it's not too personal or painful, which I know it will be both. So I'm sorry for even asking. Can you walk us through a little of the aftermath right after Hannah died and, and that transition from that personal grief and despair and turning it into this this new life that you're living, this new mission of of training and helping people to understand and have these harder conversations. Would you be okay to share with us some of that personal journey of your grief after she died? Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night All right, Laura, can you go ahead and tell us what is it like or what was it like for you when Hannah died? It is the most devastating
0: shock and both of you know what death feels like. It's it absolute shock, absolute horror, absolute it's like, it's like having, having a bomb go off in my world and decimate everything around. Nothing was green. Nothing was growing. Nothing mattered. And I just sat on my porch and I just talked to people. I was the mourner that needed people around. I didn't want to be alone because when I was alone, I was so sad and my thoughts would just run away with me. There were certain people that Stepped up and just seemed to fit in like Wade, I miss him, and he he kept on driving home, Laura, don't do what ifs, don't do what ifs, but it it's just it's like you can't even believe it's like it's not even real, it wasn't even real like she like I could hear her walking into the house, I could hear her footsteps, I could hear her mom, I'm home, you know i could I would hear her, and it's like, how can i I found her? And so there was a long time where I couldn't even be in the house. I couldn't come home and be the only one coming home because I was just, it's PTSD. It's, it's, It's completely irrational fear of things happening over and over and over again. It's living the fear in the moment when that's absolutely impossible. And yet it is in my reality, in my head. I find her over and over again. Or when my son was home from summer sales, I would come home and be afraid to walk downstairs because that's where I found Hannah. So am I going to find my son dead? The terror, you know. And then my son going through, going through. It, and people would tell me, "Oh, that can't happen twice." Well, it does happen twice, yeah. and I know that. And so it's it is the the most earth shattering. Life-altering, no way around it. your life has changed. Now, one of the things that people kept saying to me that reached out to me that had lost people or were in this world was like, "You'll never be the same, and it'll never be okay." Well, to me, wait a minute, I've got the atonement. That's mine. I know how things can change. I know how we can heal. Because I've had some pretty, pretty drastic things happen in my life, and I've healed. So I knew that it may not be the same because she's not here. She's not walking through the door. I'm not taking her to classes. She's not getting ready for college. She definitely is not here in that way. But I knew that there was a way to learn from it, grow from it, and help other people with it. And I actually knew people, and I apologize if anyone is listening to this that came close, and hopefully you, hopefully, if you're listening, it didn't actually happen, but I actually knew moms who killed themselves after their children did. And I just thought, wait a minute, we didn't want them to die. We didn't right. want them to go, right? And so slowly, very slowly, I mean, the brain does not work after loss like that, after any kind of loss. But it just doesn't work You're mush. And you and you go along and I mean I would show up to meetings three days late or three days early. <laughs> I mean I was I was a mess. I did it anyway.
1: I, I was gonna say I recognize that. I mean how many times in that immediate grief that you just you can't remember what day it is, let alone where you're supposed to be on a certain given day. And you mentioned and it doesn't matter. No, and and you can't process it anyway. You mentioned something that I think is unfortunately quite common in the world of suicide. Once you have lived through losing someone to suicide, it is almost impossible to not worry that you will lose someone else. And I think people who have not ever had to go through that experience in a family or close friend relationship, suicide for a lot of people is just kind of this foreign thing that somebody else does or like you said, those weak people that can't handle it. And once it's been somewhere in your world... It can feed that anxiety that it might end up everywhere in my world. And people say, oh, that couldn't happen or that won't happen twice. Well, you know it could happen because guess what? The worst case scenario just happened. And so don't you try to pretend you can't promise me the worst case scenario won't happen again. So that fear is so real when you've lived through that kind of deep hell in your life and people say, oh, it'll be okay. I mean, you almost want to punch them in the face and say... Do do you realize this? But I also like what you said, even though it won't ever be the same, it can still be hopeful and it can still be beautiful. And I think that's probably, I mean, right in line with what you're doing with Live Hannah's Hope. How did you get from this deep despair, mushy brain, fog of the grief, not able to think, not able to breathe, not able to stop worrying about what someone else in your family might do or another way you could lose a loved one? How did you get from there to even starting your Live Hannah's Hope organization? That's a huge jump from that depth of despair to climbing out and saying, okay, now we're going to do something because of what we faced.
0: No, it was a strange things would happen that I didn't create. Like a lawyer got a hold of me and said, I want to help. Okay, do whatever you need to do. I don't know what to do. Just do it. And then a commissioner calling me and saying, we're going to do a fundraiser in our county, and we want Liv Hanna's Hope to be a recipient. So you need to have a 501c3. Okay, I don't even know what to do with that. Call the lawyer. He's on his way down to run a 24-hour up and down the the, um, canyon rim at at the Grand Canyon. He says, okay, I'll do that right now. No, you don't have to do it right now. And then... 25 days later, I get in the mail that I've been approved for 501c3. Mm -hmm. So things happen that I just had no idea. I I mean, I I was a part of it. I asked, but things just kept on happening that way. And um, Debbie Todd, who is the prevention coordinator and now runs the Mindfulness Center in Davis County, who's on my board She just continually said, well, why don't you come do the mindfulness course? Why don't you learn how to do learning to breathe and learn to become certified in that? And then um, other people offered me, oh, military. Oh, my gosh. Jenny, they were a huge part of, I had done so much for them as far as funding through the legislature and suicide prevention that they turned around and just took care of me in a way that was just amazing. And so they put me through courses and um, educated me. And so it was like the more I got educated, the more I did, the more I realized that everything I was experiencing, everything I was going through was healthy. And it was really People tried to give me, I mean, I think I probably got a hundred books sent to me. You probably know what that's like. Matter of fact, I think I gave you a book. (laughs) You (laughs) sure did. Yeah. (laughs) So I, that was the only book I could read. None of the books even resonated with me. And I didn't even really try because I wanted to experience it. It was my grief. It was my daughter. This was sacred to me. No one, no one could tell me how to feel or what to do. And I just stayed with God. I asked him questions. I demanded answers. And he answered me over and over and over and over again with simple things. Like, I remember one day I was sitting out right where I'm sitting right now on my patio. And I said, God, I just really need to know what she was thinking right before she did this. I need to know. And a girl walks down my street. She's lived next door to me for 15 years. She said, Laura, I have to tell you something. I've never shared this with you, but I was in the hospital, and I tried to do the same thing to myself, and somebody found me. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. really, the exact same thing that Hannah did? And you notice that I'm not mentioning means, and I'm not going to. It triggers people, so I'm not going to do that. And so, and I was like, okay, then what were you feeling at that very moment? She said, Laura, I just wanted my pain to end. I just wanted the pain to end. So I get answers like that, you know, and I, I recognize them. And, and every day it gets a little bit easier, a little bit easier. And I remember the moment when I felt guilty for having joy that I realized that Hannah's death actually blessed me. That was hard and beautiful and difficult and joyful. And it's still difficult to share that. With people because most people don't understand yeah think- Laura
1: I I feel the same way in fact I found myself saying those very words not long ago when I was sharing some of my own grief journey and I had to stop myself and say I hate I hate the fact that I can say my life has been blessed because of my husband's death I I feel that pain in your voice and saying the beautiful good that has come out of so much personal agony but I I applaud you and thank you for recognizing that and not being afraid to take that beauty and let it help somebody else.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think that that's a common theme in death and and even when John had cancer, I remember sharing I think on a Facebook post that and, and this was before he died, but that I never understood that you could experience both utter loss and sadness. And joy at the same time. Yeah. That joy, the other side of that coin of joy can be some real dark hurt. And yet there can be such joy, too. And I I think that nobody understands it unless you've lived it.
1: Yeah. It's hard to find words.
0: It is. It's hard. And and not everybody gets there. It almost feels like a betrayal, And then you put someone like me who's out there in the public talking about suicide, and that's what we're trying to prevent, right? And I was talking Mm -hmm. to a good friend the other day, and I said, I just can't get behind zero suicides because that's not going to happen. People are going to leave, and that's going to have to be okay eventually.
1: Wow. Laura, let's take one more break, and then when we come back, teach us not only what resilience is to you, but some of the things you teach in your QPR classes. You mentioned some training through the military. You're working with school districts. I know we don't have enough time to get into depth on all of this, but come back and tell us and our listeners some resources, some of the basics, and where we can turn to get more information so that we can have these conversations and educate ourselves to hopefully help with that prevention effort. We'll be right back. All right, we're back with Laura Warburton, who is sharing with us the journey of losing her young teenage daughter to suicide a few years back. And also the grief journey that she's walked through and continues to walk in helping to educate, inform, start conversations so that we can get some of that stigma out of the way and and literally help save lives. Laura, tell us about what you do in your training and interacting right now through Live's, Live Hannah's Hope and also with your QPR classes and the things that you're offering to community members?
0: Well, everything is free, first of all. And sometimes I have community partners that help provide booklets and so forth for the evidence based programs like QPR. And, you know, like the sheriff's office that will open up their doors anytime that I ask. And so anybody that wants to have a QPR class. You can arrange it. It can be 10 people to be in your home. It's just a way to learn how to identify suicidal ideation and some of the subtle hints and then what to do when you see it. Not to become a therapist, not to say that you can prevent all or that it's all your responsibility, but you can, if you notice some things, prevent suicide by some very, very simple tools. And those tools are mostly just friendship-type tools. So we do that. It takes about an hour to an hour and a half, depending on how many questions there are. I am always here. I am absolutely cherished when parents reach out to me and say, I've got a problem, child, or I don't know what to do. I haven't had one do that with me that we've lost yet. I have no claim to that. I have no therapy background. I have no professional licensing. I am just a friend.
1: What do you say when someone approaches you that way? I mean, imagine if it were me or Michelle or another one of us who have a family member, or friend struggling, we say, Laura, help us. I just am recognizing signs. Now what?
0: Well, really, it's so individual. Um, I've had everything from parents who have gotten, just gotten remarried and who are, and the kids are struggling and they feel inadequate, um, There's so many different circumstances, so that's really difficult to say. But I do say there's a few things that you can say that you don't have to explain it. You don't have to lecture. And one is, hey, whatever you're going through, we're going through together. That's what families do. You are not a burden to me. Yeah, I'm sad that you're sad, but that's okay because that's what families do because a person has to feel like a burden before they'll die of suicide, where they'll take themselves out of this life. And then the other thing is that you have to have absolutely zero hope of what you can do, right? you lost all hope that anything can change. So you can do several things. You know, honey, there are things you haven't tried yet. There are things that we can do. It's going to be okay. And sometimes it's just getting them through that first two or three days, a week or whatever, You know, if someone's already attempted, you take them to the hospital. If someone is actually threatening themselves with a gun in front of you, you call the police. And the police are not the best ones to call, even though I love my first responders with all my heart. They're not the the best ones to call. The best thing to do is to get your child to the hospital. Now, most kids, and this is statistics, will come out more suicidal than they went in. My son experienced that. But... More will not actually take their own lives. So it's a safe place, a place to go. There is, I'll tell you one story about a girl. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) About three or four years ago, her mom called me, and she left a family party on New Year's Eve and went home and tried to kill herself took her to the hospital I had just started to investigate and believe in ketamine treatments which I still do wholeheartedly so this woman is a good friend of mine they live down in Salt Lake um, they spent a week I went to the hospital visited with the daughter the daughter and I were friends anyway so that helped daughter came back lived with me for um, close to six weeks and did ketamine treatment and She just got home from a mission, and she's getting married in October. She is doing amazing. So, see, there are things like you probably didn't even know ketamine even existed, and that was a possibility. So giving somebody hope that things can change, even saying, let's go out to breakfast in the morning. I've done that with a lot of kids. Let's go to breakfast. Let's talk in the morning. Let's do a Zoom meeting in the morning. Okay, that's hope. That's hope that answer your
1: question? Yeah, I love it. I'm just thinking I had a friend, your words, that's hope, that's hope, remind me of a conversation I had not long ago where someone described the definition of hope as just being able to look forward to something. Like, okay, we're going to go to breakfast in the morning. There's something in the, in the near future that's happening or, or thinking of a goal or something. That concept of hope is just so beautiful.
0: It is. And yet I'm going to be really honest with you and tell you that I would like to get rid of that word eventually, because hope means that right now is not okay.
1: Oh, wow. What a powerful way to look at that.
0: Right. So faith. So faith that it's all going to work out for my good, that nothing happens to me, everything happens for me, that God loves me that much. Now, a lot of people can't be there yet. So hope is a bridge to that. But I want now, whatever now is, to be okay. That's my goal, not my, for myself too. I want now to be good to be that I am so grateful with what is that I'm good,
2: and I totally relate to that, and yet at the same time, you know, we all struggle. There's things that are really hard and situations that make us feel like all hope has been drained, that there isn't a better day ahead, or that this pain or this situation seems hopeless, that there's no way around it, that it's never going to be resolved. John used to say, the only thing consistent in life is change. And I I think that that's where we have to turn our focus to, is that, you know, we can get into situations that feel hopeless, but we have to really understand and know that the truth of what you just said that all things are for our good. It may be a long time. I I don't know how losing John was for my good still. I accept it. Um, I hurt for my grandkids and my children that they don't have a father and a grandfather. I hurt for myself that I don't have my husband. But there have still been beautiful moments that have come and a lot of growth that has come from the experience you know John and I were married young we we lived a very real life and were full of passion and a lot of anger at times and you know I've shared with people at times that you know cancer is a great teacher because it will teach you very quickly how certain things just don't really matter in the big scheme
0: yeah. I like that Michelle
2: um yeah you know the the Cancer will teach you really quickly that the little things of life, the petty things, they just don't matter. And that the big focus is on, I only have a limited time. So what am I going to choose to create value to or put purpose in? You know, how do I want to spend this time that I have? And, um, you know, the sweetness of it is I'm going to be able to take that into all my relationships in the future and, It's a bittersweet, beautiful lesson, and I'm glad that I got to experience that with my sweet husband, you know, and that we were able to have that bond and connection. But I think that that just goes back to that, you know, we still have to find purpose, which goes back to resiliency, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that you're not going to be sad, just like you started off the show. It's not that we're not going to be sad. Resilience doesn't mean that you're not sad or that you don't hurt or that you're not lonely at times or a million other things, but it is creating value out of loss and figuring out how to move forward, not just move on, but how to move forward and to really learn to live and thrive.
0: Yep. I agree. That's perfect. And I remember when I was going over Trapper's Loop and Chase was struggling But he wasn't struggling too bad. And I was telling my friend that it was just getting easy enough that I missed, and I'll never say it again, but I missed the trauma because exactly what you said, Michelle, the trauma makes everything that's not important fall away. And living in that importance, living in that truth of what is important is powerful and sweet. It is. Laura, I'd love to know, what else
1: What else would you add to that definition of resilience or what you would hope people who are trying to build resilience in their lives would maybe focus on or understand? I think it, it's a choice, but not always
0: an easy choice. It's, it's being gentle, finding self-compassion and saying it's okay to hurt and questioning the thoughts that cause pain, you know? I should have, or I could never see Hannah get married. Is that true? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know that that's true. But that sure brought me a lot of pain. And so while I was dwelling on that, I couldn't move forward. So it was just, it's a matter of seeking out truth. What is truth? To me, truth sets you free. I know that's a very religious statement, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Just not stopping. Just keep going. Just Keep questioning, keep trying, keep believing, and and talk to people. Don't do this alone. Oh, heavens, do not do this alone. We need each other. We need each other. We
2: do, and I, I I love that. We should close on that thought, really. We're living in such a world where there's so much disconnect, and there's so much division, and we really need to get back to we don't have to agree with each other on everything. But we need to honor each other and be able to say, I get to have my ideas, my views, and you get to have yours. But there's things that we all want in humanity generally and we should be working towards those things.
0: Yeah, it's it's rough right now. It's really rough. It is there rough. Now I
1: I just love that we need each other. I I love that we can close on that, and I want to put that on a T-shirt. I'm going to have a whole collection of T-shirts from lessons I've learned through the wonderful guests we've had on this show. I I I hope our listeners are listening and getting ready for like a whole new wardrobe because that's true. We need each other. What is the definition of resilience? We need each other. Don't do this alone because you can't. So stop trying, and you don't Mm -hmm. need to. So stop feeling like you've got to. Laura, we can't thank you enough for sharing so many tender feelings about Hannah and her story, but also not just for sharing with us today, but for what you're doing to help so many people like me and Michelle, like our listeners, like the students of your classes and the young people and parents and just everyone you're helping where you've taken this determination because of what you've been through to help others hopefully not ever have to go through that. Laura, where can we find you? Where can we learn more about Live Hannah's Hope? And especially, where can you guide us to get some of these resources? Do you have a website or something you can share? I
0: do. It's Live Hannah's Hope. And it's two H's. So L-I-V-E, Hannah's, H-A-N-N-A-H-S, Hope, org. hop dot org.
1: All right. Well, thank you for all that you're willing to do and all that you've dedicated yourself to do to help so many people live Hannah's hope. Thank you, ladies. So thank you for listening to our listeners. We hope you like what you've heard today and that you'll find us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a a like, a rating and a review. And please reach out to us if you or someone you know has a real life story that you're willing to share. We would love to share that with our listeners. Email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast.
2: Remember whatever you do today, be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own life. Have a great day. Amen.